The talk tonight is about love and wisdom. Often when we consider mortality, um, we forget the most important piece of uh, mortality and that one way you can hold it is that life is very precious. At, at the least we see in spring, for example, you know, there's so much birth, but there's so much death if, you, if you're paying attention very closely. Not every being makes it in the nest. If you look at if you look at the robins, you know closely, they're just pulling out worms and eating them. You know, it's like there's a lot going on um, in the service of our aliveness. So if there is life, there is death. It's just like this aliveness um, that we are immersing ourselves in very deeply when we're on retreat. Uh, so one of the really important um, teachings in in relationship to mortality is to understand how precious birth is, how much goes into us being here. You know, just the fact that we're still here means that we have received so much protection. And out of that understanding that life is so precious that we want to um, use the time we have, whatever that time is, wisely. You know, that, that um, it, it's just such a motivating force. So in this way, <clears throat> it's considered to be the deepest protection, this awareness of death. Because it can be, as Steve says, harnessed. It's like we harness that understanding into um, humility rather than arrogance. So when we talk about love and wisdom... Essentially, it is a paradoxical um, understanding that we have. It's like, generally, to be able to equally value love and wisdom is a huge feat for us as human beings. And this doesn't mean that we're understanding this intellectually. It's this very deep acceptance that they're both true. But they're both hard to reconcile if you include both of them as something we value. So if we really attempt to unconditionally love, which is in the Buddhist teaching, the metta is unconditional love, um, and we've, we've addressed this a bit throughout the retreat. It's like often we see in ourselves and others what isn't love. We see what is conditional. Uh, and it's only by being willing to go through that process that we um, 
we will understand that love in this context, unconditional love, is love infused with wisdom. Metta is love infused or permeated with wisdom. There's a deep understanding of impermanence in that love. And that's how it becomes less and less conditional. You know, for example, (laughs) I'll love you if you don't die. Or I'll love myself if I don't whatever. Or I'll love you if whatever, you know. And usually if you boil down what the conditions are, you know, they're very selfish (laughs) and self-centered. Including ourselves. It's usually I love myself if I am perfect, if I don't mistakes. I love others if they're pleasant for me all the time and they're like acting like I want them to be. And the human world is so challenging when it comes to unconditional love because no one's behaving the way we want them to, hardly. You know, it's like, it's just unbelievable how no one seems to be, you know, we're the conductor, you know, and it's like we're, we're conducting, but they're not behaving, you know. It's so interesting. <laughs> so in the Buddha taught that unconditional love is actually rare, very rare and hard for us to cultivate. It takes cultivation, practice. If we look at um, mindfulness and that it's a wisdom practice, Mindfulness is awareness infused with wisdom. An awareness infused or permeated with understanding how things are. And I want to go over a few things again. We've talked about it, but just to give again a context. It's like we tend to, as humans, most of us, prefer love over wisdom because it feels so good so it's it's like we yearn for union we yearn for the loss of the little me meaning the little me with all our fears and desires it's like when that disappears when we have lost ourselves in the other whatever that other is it feels wonderful And when we get attached to it, that's the control. We get attached to it because we want it to be permanent. And we're trying to make eternal that which can never be eternal. And it's very painful, as we all know. It's like anything that we look at that has been so painful for us, it's usually, you know, this impermanence, this the way things are, and we, you know, we want... (laughs) so much for that union. And we want so much for that union to last. And, you know, I can say this, but, you know, when you get into the depths of the human heart, you know, this really hurts. This yearning, this longing for this union. And hence, most of us like 
concentration. We like fixed concentration. And I, I went over this my, the first night of this course, but I want to go over it again because it's so important. If we put a, the lights out, we put a candle in front of the room, and we just asked everybody to ignore whatever's happening, like a knee pain or a loud sound or a happy thought or whatever. You ignore whatever is appearing. Whatever is appearing moment, you're doing the opposite of the wisdom practice. You're not with the flow of life at all, which is staccato. It's staccato. It's staccato. It's change. Fixed concentration is total control. It's total repression. And it feels great. It feels wonderful. And you've lost your sense of self with this union. You keep staying with the candle. Or, but it can be loving-kindness practice. It, there's many different fixed concentrations. Um, when it's loving-kindness practice, it, it's even more pleasurable because you're staying with loving-kindness, not, uh, not a candle. It's, and again, it's like, feels great, and I'm not knocking it. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's considered to be rest, seclusion, solitude, union, you know, etc. That's the goal of that practice. Um, but it doesn't help us to be with things that, as they are at all. And what happens when the concentration goes and aversion comes up? What do we do? So fixed concentration isn't going to help us get liberated. It's not going to help us to see things as they are or to be with this range of joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain. That's the mindfulness practice. What I'm saying is that we need to value both. Meaning that you know a world without any connection is... is it's ridiculous. Babies would die. Babies die without care. Babies will actually die without some connection. So it's, it's a really important quality for us to cultivate. And in the first half of this retreat, that's what we were doing. We were cultivating this ability to tune into the goodness of each other and ourselves. And the Buddha likened this experience of loving kindness to the, you know, the experience of a mother cow looking at her newborn calf. Amazing, huh? And reminding us. He used an animal for this imagery. It's like that feeling of like wishing this newborn well. And so what he's teaching is, can we have this experience for ourselves? Can we connect with ourselves, our hearts, like a newborn? Because actually each moment our heart is newborn. We are actually that tender. And that's the heart. The nature of the heart is newborn. And and to be able to grasp that we are actually cultivating an attention that can relate to ourselves as a newborn. In fact, he's teaching that Unless we can do it for ourselves, we really can't get it for other people. That it will be off balance.
someone wrote me a note at the end of the last retreat that had been really working with a lot of self-hatred over the years and wrote simply, um, he wrote it to all of us, uh, thank you so much for hanging in with me. I had glimpses of goodwill for myself for the first time in my life. Glimpses of goodwill for myself. And we know (laughs) that is such a huge achievement. Glimpses of goodwill. It's so well said. And I know when I was first doing that practice, I felt like I had this little coal in my hand and that during the retreat, the metta practice was like going... (laughs) (laughs) like and hoping it wasn't going to go out you know and then it would go out and it would be like what do you do you know it's like (laughs) whoa you know gone gotta wait you know it's usually that hard for us the loving kindness for ourselves that that's attunement to our own goodness So I'm going to be going back and forth between the wisdom and the love. Um, there, is, there is a method to this, but it is going to be a weaving rather than keeping them separate. Because they really, when you're trying to explain love permeated with wisdom and wisdom permeated with love, you kind of have to keep weaving it. Worthiness. When we get to some of the reasons why it's so easy for this little coal or ember to go out, it's like, can we receive? It's like the question is, and it's the same in the mindfulness practice or the loving kindness, can we actually receive our own goodness? Can we actually receive loving kindness? Can we actually receive the wind on our cheek? or the coolness of the temperature on our eyes. It's like, the, it's, like we're, it's like all around seeing if we can actually receive. And often the block that we have with our own goodness is unworthiness. There's a teacher that I've talked about um, that I like to visit in Burma. Myatong Sayadaw, the happy Sayadaw, who's 92, probably 93 or 4 now. Um, And one time I was asking him about a particular practice called um, reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha. It's considered a guardian meditation. And it's often quite... um, How would I say it? It's like there's a long list of the virtues of the Buddha, and you're you're meant to kind of go through all of them, you know, like patience, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, just like all these qualities. Uh, and I always found it for myself um, difficult to do. So I told him that, and you know, I always love it because he always just laughs. You know, he's like, ah ha ha ha, ha. <laughs> and it's like, okay, funny, yes, can't do that one, and. Um, <laughs> 
And but he'll just come back with such an up-leveling of how I might do it and how he did it. So in the in the Sagain Hills in Burma, you know, they do these practices for a really long time and they're not considered like preliminary or like somehow not as good practices. These are considered really important. Um, so he moved into this area when he was seven years old. He's, he was a monk since he was seven and has just been in that one monastery since he was seven years old. And there's a pagoda up on the hill that I love and it's usually deserted and it's, it's blue and I've, it's, it's like so... Um, powerful Uh, and I didn't know it was his and so when he was younger he had it built so that if you walk through it and you look you walk through toward the back there's a space and then there's these steps that go up to this um, door and you open this door and there's this really sweet Buddha in there and so he would sit looking at these steps and he'd open this up and for years he would look at the Buddha and he would he would hold his beads and uh, he'd look at the Buddha and say to himself with his eyes closed worthiness look at the Buddha close his eyes and say worthiness for years that was his practice Worthiness. Worthiness. So in, instead of going through a whole list of patience, metta, loving kindness, right, all, for him, he just kept taking in that there was no separation between him and the Buddha, and that he kept just receiving those qual that he was worthy for those qualities. And it, it's just, it's so deep. just receiving your own worthiness, your own goodness. Um, And I felt that when he taught me that, there was something so profound that went in. You know, and it's like, if I'm at an airport, if I'm walking, I'll just do that practice. I'll see people, I'll just see them, and I'll just say worthiness. So I see everyone that way. So as we said the other night, (laughs) mindfulness is the ultimate protection because it's what allows us to be with life just as it is. It's the opposite of control. It's the opposite of repression. It's like it's moving toward being able to be with anything. And it doesn't mean that we're with it and then we're saying 20 years from now, this shouldn't come up. Or 10 years from now, this shouldn't come up. Or, you know, whatever. It's really getting this strength. It's, it's so imperturbable. It's an imperturbability. And it might look like <laughs> that might, you might think, oh, that means nothing's coming up. At first, but it's the opposite. It's like it's this ability to deal with sleepiness so that one totally doesn't take it personally. 
So it's not like 10 years from now, if this, all the sleepiness comes up, you think, I'm beyond sleepiness, because then it'll be like, well, that's my sleepiness, and one's defeated, because you're thinking it's mine, and all it is is low energy. And it's with all the hindrances. It's like restlessness. The Buddha's teaching on restlessness, if you read the text, is so simple, it could make you cry. I mean, we'll come up with all these different ways to work with it, which is really great. What the Buddha said was, <laughs> I love it, I do, it just cracks me up. Okay, <laughs> when there's restlessness, the yogi knows that restlessness is happening. That's, the, that's it. It's one sentence. <laughs> You know, and you're a beginner and you see that and it's like, duh. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, how do you do that? How do you just, he or she knows that restlessness is happening and that's it. But in a way, that is all it really takes. (laughs) You just know. But I mean, we describe it more carefully because in actuality, it's the resistance to it that's so painful. It's the taking it personally that's so painful. It's the inability to have skillful means when it comes up that's so painful. And then if you look closely, I love the description of this hindrance because it's not just restlessness. It's restlessness and worry. Well, and I come from a family of, you know, we are champion warriors. I mean, you know, it is... I just think, you know... It's it's almost like the generations have perfected the worry. Like it is brilliant. It's brilliant. It never stops and it doesn't matter what it is. You know, it's like the least little thing you worry about or the biggest thing. It's just it's a defense. It should be in the DMS3. It's like it's a it's an anxiety disorder really, but who who knew that when I was a kid? But it's strong. Restlessness and worry. So if you look closely, and it is fun to take it apart and go, well, what is restlessness? It's a lot of energy. There's very little concentration. And if you can't be with it, then these worry thoughts come, right? There's a lot of energy, and you use all that energy up worrying. It's great. It's, you know, ha, 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 right? So if you're sitting there worrying and worrying and worrying or planning, 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 it's all pretty similar. It's just like, oh, you never know what's going to happen. That's why we plan so much. I mean, how many times have all of us made plans? And it's like, it's not just one plan, right? I mean, how many times are we going through the same plan and tomorrow it's going to get worse the closer you get to the end, it's like, and then the next day, and the longer you've been here, the more intense it's going to be. It's just the way it is. It's our system. Is If you look carefully at it, what's happening? We're trying to get the best deal. If you look carefully, we are, we are trying to avoid pain at all costs. At all costs. So we just keep planning it and planning it and planning it. And then it's like, you know, you find yourself in the middle of it again. How many times do I need to run through this one, right? (laughs) And then it takes enormous compassion 
It's just we all need so much metta and compassion because we see, oh, right, this little tender newborn heart is scared. It's just we're just scared. We don't want pain. And to just deeply understand that, that it's okay that we don't want pain. Of course we don't want pain. I mean, who would volunteer for that? No one. But then, that there it is. You know that great saying, you can plan for a hundred years, but you never know what's going to happen. Uh, so again, I will bring in this balance of love and wisdom. It's like, mostly, we suffer because we care so much. If you look at the roots of anger, if you look at the roots of jealousy, if you look at the roots of sadness, if you look at the roots of a lot of the difficult emotions, it's because we care so much. And it's not balanced with the wisdom enough that it knocks us off, that we can't really control (laughs) that much. And that actually unconditional love has nothing to do with control. So certainly this is what we're up against in our relationships and in life. It's like um, Che Guevara said, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, a true revolutionaries are motivated by love. At the risk of sounding ridiculous. That's so beautiful. So if we care, that's why we connect. You know, it's like, okay, oh, well, who cares if the earth blows up, right? You know, who cares? You know, that, that is not a connected statement. But if we kind of are honest with ourselves, we care. But how do you navigate through what's happening on the planet? Well, you care. You do the best you can to not harm, yeah? And depending on our circumstance, however we might do that, the wisdom is teaches us the ethics that teaches us how to be simple. The ethics, the mindfulness keeps teaching us actually how to care well and how to be non-attached to the result of our action. This is the balance of love and wisdom. Always to care, to do the best we can, and then the non-attachment to result of the action. Every sitting, you have to do that. You come in here, <laughs> you come in here because you care. And then you sit down. Can you control what happens? No. And that it's so beautiful. You do the best you can to be here with non-attachment to the result of the action. You go out to walk, same thing. You can sit, same thing. Eat, same thing. This is also meant to help us do that in our life, in our work, in our relationships, with everything. We care so much. We, culti- we keep cultivating that interconnectedness, the love, balanced with the non-attachment to the result of our actions. It's a great way to be. It means less and less suffering.
So we're learning that we are what's happening at our six sense doors. When we're really concurrent and we receive what's happening in a moment at a sense door, there's nothing between us and the universe. You know, the, the sound and us, like it's like Steve says, striker receptor ignition. There is no, nothing but that sound being heard. No one hearing the sound. No one making the sound. So that deep, you know, even though we don't know it all the time, but that ability to be concurrent bypasses the separate self and the separate selves. You keep bypassing it by dropping into the body and just being with. You're, you're allowing yourself to receive the universe directly. And that understanding will come by just being willing to be humble enough to just keep receiving the universe directly. We are what is happening at our six sensors. It would be great if it was that simple. But we are also not what's happening at our six sensors. So every time a thought happens, it actually isn't ours. <laughs> every time a sound happens, it isn't ours. Do you see why this is complex for us? You know, that's what's so, it's so great about it. It's so paradoxical. We are not our body. We are not our emotion. We are not our thoughts. But the only way you can understand it is by being completely receptive to it. That's love and wisdom. Hmm. Gertrude Stein, remember her? A rose is a rose is an onion. (laughs) If you remember her. Well, she said she was the great novelist. After all, anybody is as their land and air is. Anybody is as the sky is low or high, the air heavy or clear. Or anybody is as their wind is or or no wind there. It is that which makes them, and the arts they make, and the work they do, and the way they eat, and the way they drink, and the way they learn, and everything. You know, that's how interconnected we are. You know, and if we look at community and sustainability and what comes out of the earth directly in the sky, it's like, um, that means... That's love. Love tells me I'm everything. It's like that's how truly interconnected we really are. One time um, I attended this environmental conference. Uh, It was like after the Kyoto Accords, and it was a conference... um, bringing together people in Japan and Hawaii, but, but around the world, but mainly it was focused on Japan and Hawaii. And there was a wonderful native Hawaiian man who um, came in and just said, well, what is a Hawaiian? Um, it was amazing, because he went way back in time 
before there were any islands there. And he just went through, like, what is a Hawaiian? Well, it's like the clouds that have passed over here and the ocean water that passed over here and the fire that's been here. And it's just like he kept going on and on. And every, every sentence he'd say, and that's what it is to be Hawaiian. And that's what it is to be Hawaiian. And it was just like... It just gave me goosebumps. It was so beautiful. You know, it, did, it, was, it took a long time for the humans <laughs> to come. And, you know, that it was the humans that became that and lived there. And that anybody, like a tourist, you know, he got right there with the tourists, or anybody who comes into that environment and receives that is Hawaiian. And this is what Steve means by going from conceptual to non-conceptual. It's like if we feel gratitude, it's not just we stay in the head, but really receive the gratitude with every cell of our body, through the bones, through the space between the cells. It's like really experiencing everything with our whole body and mind. That is awakening with the whole body and mind, with the whole... You're hearing with your whole body and mind. You're seeing with your whole body and mind. You're having sadness cellularly. It can be deep, dark sadness with your whole body and mind. And when we do that, it can move. It won't stay stuck. Nothing will stay stuck because it will move. If we get out of the way, things move. feel that things aren't moving, which are the karmic knots, you know, and it's very important to understand them because particularly, again, on a longer retreat, those places that are still coming up um, are places where we have a learned disconnect, such a profound disconnect from ourselves. It's awesome. So it's like any time we can get even a few seconds of connection with some really deep um, place where we've learned to resist, um, we get a, a piece of ourselves back. Really important. So the languaging, we can talk of the most, you know, it's like I can say, I can quote something like Quan Yin, you know, who is the goddess of compassion, who says, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? That's mature, right? That's deep. And like five minutes later, we might have this deep understanding of that. And five minutes later, we could be having this terror of abandonment. You know, it's like, that's how quick it can go. You know, and we might not even know that that's what's hit us, but it's like, and then usually we don't, Go, and uh, you've heard me exaggerate it. It's not like we go, oh boy, terror of abandonment just came up after that deep experience. Do we say that? 
No, we usually run for the hills and we usually go, but I want that back. I like that one. <laughs> that feels good. You know, this other one is what we learn to just slam the door on. And it's like we're slamming the door in our own face and it's no one's fault. And we will want to blame anybody, including ourselves, for this stuff. But it's like our parents learned it or somebody learned it. It's like something that just goes through generations and then it's finally, can we unlearn the abandonment of ourselves there that we learned? It's that simple. And it's like you have to grab everything, every resource that you can. It's like, can we not tell that kid to shut up at that point? And can we be interested in pain? And it doesn't even have to be a kid. I just use that languaging, but it can be a 12-year-old part. It can be a 35-year-old part. It can be an 80-year-old part. But it's, it's a place that's frozen in time. And it takes the deepest reverence and the deepest care and the greatest pace. It takes such patience. And I feel like I've learned everything from these places. I've learned insight into anatta more than any other place. Why? Because I can't be in control of the pace. And that's the greatest teaching. It's humbling. It's like I'm not in charge of the pace. My system's in charge of the pace. I can't rip the pedals open. And if, if one has that quality of humility and surrender with it, it works. So every single time you get a chance to be with it, not only are you learning loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, all the factors of enlightenment, but one's learning patience, one's learning that we're not in control of this pace. And that's the best gift. And then you get a little piece of yourself back, and it's like a reunion, a long sought after reunion. So compassion, Uh, we went over this a bit the last retreat, but compassion, the Buddha taught the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is the overwhelm or the helplessness we feel in the face of suffering. And we can't hear that enough. So usually when stuff comes up in others and ourselves, where there's an overwhelm, it will usually mean some kind of karmic knot and we'll usually, we'll hit the helplessness in the face of it or the overwhelm and we'll disconnect. And that's where we have to learn that the overwhelm or the helplessness is like a good thing. It's like, oh boy, helplessness. Because if we can like get that that's the ticket to compassion, then we can just again pause cool out, anchor. You anchor with something neutral. You just pace it. You take your time and you think, oh, (laughs) maybe I can actually care about this rather than hate it and try to get rid of it. 
And the caring about something painful is pleasant. And this is, this is the art. It's not going into the pain so deeply with our awareness that we drown. And it's not stepping so far back that we disconnect. It's learning how to have this awareness infused with care. And I, I've given this example many times. But if you walked into this room right now and I had a big, pussy, bloody hand <laughs> and, and somebody came in and they looked at the hand and they went, Michelle, that's horrible. They've connected, right? They've seen the pain, they've connected, and they fall on the floor. I'm exaggerating. They fall on the floor crying, oh, that's so sad, I feel so bad, right? And I'm standing there. Is that helpful? Is that effective? Well, do I really feel empathized with? Probably. I feel like they've connected, but they've drowned, right? in the grief, in the sorrow, in, in connecting with the pain. They feel overwhelmed and helpless, but they've drowned in it. Okay, another type comes in, standing there, and they're like... <laughs> and they start backing away. They might not even physically back away, but energetically, they're gone. They've disconnected. How does that feel? Equally unhelpful, right? It just it doesn't feel so good. And it doesn't feel like one is connected. But if somebody kinda can kinda walk in and usually of course with something very painful somebody will kinda go, Hmm, <laughs> wow, ow, that must hurt, right? And it's like so the awareness that is compassionate, say this left hand is the awareness that is compassionate, can actually kind of come up, and it's not in the pain. It's, it's a pleasant feeling of care. It's actually pleasant. And this is how you know if your grief and sorrow are not wrong or bad. In fact, it's usually often what I, we feel in the face of pain or suffering, in ourselves and others. But it's a practice. This is not something that we're saying you get overnight. This is something that you practice, and you practice it with less intense pain so that when you come across much more intense pain, you have the practice. So you practice with something painful. Oh, (laughs) you know. And then if it goes to grief, you're mindful of the grief. It's okay. Or if you go to numbness, there's nothing wrong with numbness. You just, you just, you shift to being mindful of that. This is, this is the dance of learning how to be compassionate. Martin Luther King said that love has within it redemptive power. And this redemptive power of love eventually transforms individuals. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So this is a story that he told 
We all remember the great president of this United States, Abraham Lincoln. These United States, rather. You remember when Abraham Lincoln was running for president of the United States, there was a man who ran all around the country talking bad about Lincoln. He said a lot of bad things about Lincoln, a lot of unkind things. And sometimes he would get to the point that he would even talk about his looks, saying, you don't want a tall, lanky, ignorant man like this as the president of the United States. He went on and on and went around with that type of attitude and wrote about it. Finally, one day Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. And if you read the great biography of Lincoln, if you read the great works about him, you will discover that as every president comes to the point, he came to the point of having to choose a cabinet. And then came the time for him to choose a secretary of war. He looked across the nation and decided to choose a man by the name of Mr. Stanton. And when Abraham Lincoln stood around his advisors and mentioned this fact, they said to him, Mr. Lincoln, are you a fool? Do you know what Mr. Stanton has been saying about you? Do you know what he has done and tried to do to you? Do you know that he has tried to defeat you on every hand? Do you know that, Mr. Lincoln? Did you read all those derogatory statements that he made about you? Abraham Lincoln stood before the advisors around him and said, Oh, yes, I know about it. I read about it. I've heard him myself. But after looking over the country, I find that he is the best man for the job. Mr. Stanton did become Secretary of War, and later Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And if you go to Washington, you will discover that one of the greatest words or statements ever, ever, made about Abraham Lincoln was made about this man Stanton was made about this man Stanton and as Abraham Lincoln came to the end of his life Stanton stood up and said now he belongs to the ages and he made a beautiful statement concerning the character and the stature of this man if Abraham Lincoln had hated Stanton if Abraham Lincoln had answered everything Stanton said Abraham Lincoln would not have transformed and redeemed Stanton. Stanton would have gone to his grave hating Lincoln, and Lincoln would have gone to his grave hating Stanton. But through the power of love, Abraham Lincoln was able to redeem Stanton. Pretty powerful. John Lennon said that we need to forgive each other every five minutes. And that isn't an exaggeration. You know, it's like, it's the truth. And if you do this practice 
well if you do the Vipassana practice. It's like we just see how we are motivated so much by greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, that that is the truth. And that, yes, those are our mistakes in our speech, in our action. You know, and it's humbling. It's humbling. It's humbling. And as we go through this process, we will feel, hopefully, very deeply things we've said or things we've done that, you know, like that hurt the heart. Um, And it's not meant to be a process of self-hatred or guilt, but it's a process of really seeing that, yes, um, we actually all are in the same boat. And that, you know, it's like the more you see yourself clearly, the more you will start to understand others. And you just like, if you can get through one retreat and have compassion for yourself, then you will have an equal compassion for others. We see what we're up against. <laughs> one time I went in for an interview with Sayada Upandita, and he said, um, you know, how much delusion do you think there really is? You know, and I'm always, is this a trick question? <laughs> you know, with Upandita, would be always like, oh, you know, ready to give the wrong answer again, right? And, uh, but I was in a pretty humble place, and I just said, oh, it's like a mile high. It's just a mile high. And he was like, yeah. The Buddha said, When embraced, the rod of violence breeds danger and fear. Look at people quarreling. I will tell of how I experienced dismay. Seeing people floundering like fish in small puddles, competing with one another. As I saw this, fear came into me. The world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of line. Wanting a haven for myself, I saw nothing that wasn't laid claim to. Seeing nothing in the end but competition, I felt discontent. And then I saw an arrow here. And then I saw an arrow here. So very hard to see, embedded in the heart. Overcome by this arrow, you run in all directions. But simply by pulling it out, you don't run, you don't drown. You don't run. We don't run out of fear or aversion. We don't drown out of attachment. You know, that is incredible simply by pulling it out, pulling this thorn of not seeing clearly the greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the not seeing it clearly. And over and over again, we get, it's, he's saying, it's the suffering that ends suffering, the willingness to come on retreat and being willing to see when we're motivated by greed. We get to see when we're motivated by attachment, 
you know, or delusion, this is the suffering that ends suffering. first glimpses into uh, that deep kind of imperturbability of peace, I was sitting um, before tea in the winter at a retreat center that um, had a house across the street from it, and there was a dog that lived across the street that barked a lot, like a lot. (laughs) And... um, and I was sitting, and uh, the bell rang, and everybody went out of the room to go to tea. And I was just having one of the first experiences of just this deep contentment and not needing or wanting anything. I didn't want to go to tea. I felt really complete, whole, for quite a while. Um, and then this little thought came. I wonder what they're having for tea. (laughs) And, you know, maybe 15 minutes before, that thought could have come through, and I I wouldn't have bought into it. But the energy had gone down, the equanimity had gone down, I didn't understand any of this, and I went, I wonder what they're having for tea. And it was like, I knew I didn't want to believe it. You know, so I was like, oh no! I don't want to believe this thought, you know, but I just couldn't quite get out. And finally enough energy equanimity came back and it was like, I didn't understand quite of it yet, but I could see that I didn't have to believe that thought in that moment. And the imperturbability came back for a while. And then this dog started barking. And then these thoughts started happening, like, maybe they're having popcorn. You know, maybe they're having something that, you know, like a treat, like apple pie. You know, like it just, like, started doing this, you know, what am I missing? Right, and then, oh! (laughs) But I could see that my thoughts were just like the dog. Like, it was such a beautiful, quiet night and dark and wintry and... Bark, 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 bark. Like, I want, I want whatever they're having, you know. But I didn't. I actually didn't want whatever they were having. And so this struggle was going on in me where it was like, wait a minute, you know, what is going on here? It's like, I feel great. What is this? And it was like, oh, wanting. You know, it was the first time I got to see it. And then it was like, oh, I don't have to buy into this. And it's totally okay. So the time when I had been not bothered by anything and imperturbable was really one kind of learning. But this other learning felt even more important. You know, that edge where the wanting was coming up and I had enough spaciousness and mindfulness to actually see that that wanting, if I could relate to it well, was totally okay as well, if I wasn't buying into it. And, and so this is very important for all of us because when we have that deep contentment, we think it's permanent. 
we take it very personally, like it's mine, it's my imperturbability. And then when something happens, when the equanimity or energy goes down and we believe a thought, we think, I have lost it. I'm no good. You know, I'm perturbable. It's just this endless cycle of going down. And we can get really lost in it. It's like doubt, despair, you know, just black hole. I'm a failure at this too, <laughs> you know. Just just from just from believing one thought. And so this is the beauty of this practice is getting quiet enough to get to see that through the practice we actually be we actually do become more imperturbable. But we're actually gonna see more clearly when we're not and that's humbling, but the only way we can actually liberate ourselves. <clears throat> so it really takes this path of an equally equal relationship of love and wisdom, uh, really seeing that it's important to cultivate both so that we stay in balance. So I'd like to end with a quotation from Lao Tzu. I change nothing and the people transform themselves. I stay still, and the people adjust themselves. I do nothing, and the people enrich themselves. I want nothing, and the people simplify themselves. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.